0: You are listening to the Canadian Immigration Podcast, episode 112.
1: The Canadian immigration process can be complex and frustrating. With the Canadian Immigration Department making it virtually impossible to speak to an officer, there are few places to turn to for trusted information. The Canadian Immigration Podcast was created to fill this void by offering the latest on immigration law, policy, and practice. Please welcome ex-immigration officer and Canadian immigration lawyer, Mark Holthe, as he is joined by industry leaders across Canada, sharing insight to help you along your way.
0: Welcome back, everyone, to another Business Immigration Series episode within the Canadian Immigration Podcast. We're recording here from uh, Lethbridge and Calgary. Alicia is joining me once again. How are you, Alicia?
2: I'm doing well, Mark, and this is one of those podcasts that I think are... Very important for employers to know because guess what? The Immigration and Refugee Protection Act deems you to know better.
0: Exactly. And I think one of the things we see a lot is employers are busy. They've got a lot going on with their businesses and they have a tendency to want to hire someone to just help take care of everything so they don't have to think about it. And we see this a lot uh, as we're taking on files from previous representatives and sometimes employers just don't have a clue what their obligations are, and uh, when it comes to compliance with the Temporary Foreign Worker Program. And so in today's podcast, we are going to touch on this exact issue, the fact that employers are deemed to know if they're on site, and in fact, deemed to know that anyone that they're employing is fully authorized to work. So Alicia, have you seen trouble spots with this in the past?
2: absolutely so the biggest one the biggest thing that employers need to know is that if they are hiring anyone who is not a canadian citizen or a permanent resident then that foreign national needs to have proper authorization to work period and The trick, though, is trying to figure out if that foreign national is authorized to work. So in the past, it might have been a little bit easier because most of the time people who are in Canada would have had a physical work permit document. And for any employer that doesn't know what a work permit looks like, it's kind of a fancy piece of paper with some security features on it, and it has nice little glossy bits, and it has the employer, employee's name, and it has their date of birth and passport information. And the key thing to look at on that document is what the employment conditions are. And so it'll normally say employer, and then it's there's an option, right? Maybe it's going to say a specific name of a specific company, and if that's the case, then it's a closed work permit, and somebody's only authorized to work for that employer, but sometimes you'll get a work permit that actually says any, any employer, you need to look at the location, make sure it's the locations that that um, employer is actually conducting business if they've got multiple locations. So those are things that often are problems where people are maybe authorized to work at one location. But if that employer opens up new businesses or has operations in different locations, all that has to be specified on the work permit. And then The other thing that also happens is that it has to be usually a certain knock code or job title.
0: It's interesting when you think about how this really becomes a problem for employers. Um, Largely, it's related to the fact there are so many open work permit holders out there. And more so than any history, any, any time in history, immigration history in Canada... Have we had more open work permit holders, which are often international students who have completed their studies and have postgraduate work permits, and and those individuals subject to any medical restrictions, which usually those are not uh, to you know not a factor for them, but sometimes they are. Um, they can work anywhere, and you can employ them like your Canadians without really needing to do too much, on, you know, uh, to to fulfill obligations on on your side. But the reality is. Um, in a world of of employment law and being very careful what you can and can't ask individuals, some employers don't know if they can ask, hey, are you a foreign national? You know, are you Mm -hmm. Canadian? Right. And, Mm -hmm. you know, that type of a question may not be appropriate, but questions like, are you authorized to work in Canada is 100% fair game. And in fact, the legislation flips it around and And it's a reverse onus provision. So very, very Mm -hmm. few legislative provisions put the onus on someone to prove something, you know, uh, in this type of a fashion. Do you want to dive into that a little bit more, Alicia?
2: Yeah, and this can also verge on employment law because it is really important to get the question right in terms of how hr teams or people who are screening for candidates are asking this question but for sure if you look at section 124 of the immigration and refugee protection act and this is 124 sub one it says every person commits an offense who and 124 sub one and then sub c employs a foreign national in a capacity in which the foreign national is not authorized under this act to be employed and so the deeming provision of 124 is actually in 124 sub 2 and it says for the purposes of 124 sub 1 sub c a person who fails to exercise due diligence to determine whether employment is authorized under this act is deemed to know that it is not authorized so a person is a legal person as well so a corporation or any sort of legal entity as well as an individual person and then it's only if you're able to exercise all due diligence to prevent the commission of the offense, that you can actually have that due diligence defense, which is defined in 124 sub-3. So this is not a situation where you can say, as an employer, oh, I had no idea that I needed to make sure that this person was properly authorized to work for my company.
0: And I think arguably as well, Alicia, the employer can't say, well, my lawyer told me they were, or my consultant who obtained the LMIA. They told me they were good to go or whoever recruiter, um, you know, you know, I just trusted them. I paid them. It's not my problem. You know, the the responsibility is theirs, which is not the case in any context within the immigration world.
2: Yeah. And so when I when we talk to our corporate employers, we make sure that they have a process in place to be able to track who their foreign workers are, who their foreign national workers are, when their work permits were issued, when their work permits are going to expire. And here's the tricky part, though. A lot of people like you mentioned, Mark, have these open work permits. And then because we have processing times that are so long right now for in Canada extensions or changes of conditions on those work permits, the tricky part is sometimes a person's physical work permit will have expired, but they have already applied to extend their work permit status. And in that case, then that employee has to prove to the employer that they've actually submitted their application through their GC Key account, and they can show that they have a confirmation of receipt with a work permit application file number.
0: And this becomes even further complicated when the uh, Minister of Immigration uh, enacts these edicts that say, "Voila, you have authorized to work. You have authorization to work international. Um, you know, post grad work permit holder or expired post grad work permit holder." You're just magically authorized to, to work until X date. And then you have an employee who has a expired work permit. You can see even the social insurance number potentially, which are 900 series numbers uh, for temporary foreign workers. It's, it's expired. And then they bring you this email from what appears to be immigration saying, um, I have authorization to, to work or return to work and, and continue working until this date. And so there's, it's not easy for employers, and I think that's why, you know, especially for us with our with our clients, whenever they have any doubt, they always reach out to us so that we can actually confirm for them. And, uh, but yeah, it's definitely not something that an employer can simply say, well, I didn't know, you know, I'm doing the best I can. Sorry, without in the absence of actual evidence or proof that you've done your due diligence. So that is what this is all about this is the nature of the podcast and uh, so let's dive a little bit deeper into it alicia Um, now we know that for most work permits the default is you need a labor market impact assessment and those those suckers are pretty detailed the conditions are pretty restrictive compared to the open work permits but um you know in in employers it's it's easy when you've been involved in the lmia which we talked about already you generally, you know what the parameters are, you know that this person is authorized, but you definitely have to be careful when it's a non-LMIA-based work permit, that even in those situations, that, that, that truly they are authorized to work. Mm-hmm.
2: And so normally, I'll, I'll triage cases with an employer. I'll say, okay, wait a minute, have you ever filed your employer portal offer under the IMP, the International Mobility Program, for any of these people, or have you done an LMIA? And if the answer to both of those is no, and then we know that we're in the open work permit field, then as long as that person does have a valid work permit or can prove that they are authorized to work via emails or um, proof that the application is in process, then that's okay. But exactly, Mark, you're right. If that employer has filed an offer of employment through the employer portal under the IMP, then it's really important that that employer is maintaining the conditions of work that they said that they were going to offer in that offer of employment. And so If they have submitted an offer for a specific position at a specific wage rate with specific hours and bonuses and all sorts of things like that, they can't turn around and deviate from what they have told the government that they were providing in that offer of employment. So failing to follow their own offer, the conditions of their own offer is going to be a violation. They're not going to be doing what they said they are going to do. also, keep in mind that there were changes last September to employer requirements in terms of what they have to do to provide, and this is a bit of a bone of contention, some sort of written employment agreement. And this becomes problematic when you have situations of, of workers parachuting in from sister companies or parent companies from the U.S. often. So making sure that whatever was in that offer of employment is being documented and employers are keeping records for six years on the fact that, yeah, they are doing what they said they were going to do, either under the employer portal offer or under the LMIA.
0: Yeah. You know, I think one of the things that most employers don't fully appreciate, and although our criminal system is not really designed to throw people in jail and, you know, lock them up and toss the key, there still are some pretty hefty complications and and fines and, and other uh, enforcement action that immigration can take. And I want to just shift a little bit into some of those, uh, well, some of the more serious and some of the more practically damaging things that can happen to employers um, when they're found mm-hmm. to be non-compliant. And mm-hmm. because traditionally, and let's be honest, like it's one thing to scare employers, like it, it Sometimes that isn't, that isn't always helpful, but, but the reality is you do need to be aware. And mm-hmm. uh, over the last while, we've seen uh, a greater willingness of immigration to pursue employers and to take more action against them. And as the economy continues to heat up and as there's more players out there looking to help you as an employer find workers, the burden on you to make sure things are, are, are legitimate, they're legal, Um, that you're following the proper procedures, that burden is going to be ever increasing. And as ESDC starts to crack down and really, really um, investigate this, and we will talk about audits and inspections in our our next episode of the podcast, including, you know, documents you should keep on record. And we'll, we'll talk about all those things, how to be prepared for those audits when they come. But can you talk a little bit about these penalties? Alicia. Mm -hmm.
2: And I've had cases like this is a classic case where somebody contacts me and says, Oh, well, I had these subcontractors and they were bringing in the workers. Right. And so right away, the question is, well, what sort of due diligence did you put in place to make sure with your subcontractor that that all the laws were being followed, that the people that are actually on the work site are going to have proper authorization to work because the penalties are really significant. So if you look under Section 125 of the Immigration Refugee Protection Act, It says that a person, so either an individual human person or a corporate person who commits an offense under section 124, is liable on conviction on indictment to a fine of not more than $50,000 or to imprisonment for a term of not more than two years or to both. So if the Crown were to proceed by indictment, that employer or that individual is looking at $50,000 possible fine plus a term of two years potentially in jail. And the other option, of course, is if the pr- Crown were to proceed summarily, then the fine is $10,000 or and or imprisonment for a term of six months. But it's impl- important for employers to realize they could be literally going to jail if they were... C- contravening section 124 if they were hiring workers who were not authorized to be employed by their corporation
0: yeah and it's also important to to remind everyone that these are the penalties under the immigration refugee protection act we're not even talking yet about the penalties that exist under you know the the temporary foreign worker program itself through sdc so we'll get to those in a little bit but uh yeah, so it's you know have we ever seen anyone? I'm not sure if we've ever seen anyone at this stage, Alicia, that's actually been thrown in jail. But clearly, the more egregious the situation, like for an employer, um, you know, where there's a willful, <clears throat> a willfulness, I guess you could say, <clears throat> excuse me, to to this process, where the actions are are just such that they, you know, demand some form of of. Uh, a deterrent to others from doing the same thing, where people are exploited and, and, you know, really, really suffering. I guess maybe we could get into that realm. But it's not just that, right? There's, there's the public embarrassment and the goodwill that can be lost by employers. And, of course, there's this blacklist,
2: Mm -hmm. Well, and before we move away from the Act itself too, it's also important to realize that there's a counseling misrepresentation uh, provision as well. So if you have people who are... trying to encourage the employer to do something that's going to be misrep or to contravene the act then that itself is also something that's going to be a penalty under the act so it's not just the employer it's everybody connected to the employer you can't just hide behind you know somebody else or pass the buck this is something that's going to flow back to you back to the employer. Um, So yes, provisions under the Act itself for making sure that people are following the law and also making sure they're following labor standards and employment. And for sure, there's a blacklist. There's a whole bunch of provisions that employers must follow, and those are set out in the Immigration and Refugee Protection Regulations. And I think, Mark, you and I were around long enough ago that when this blacklist first came out there was nobody on it and we weren't sure how long it would take for somebody to get, get actually get on this blacklist but if i pull up the blacklist today so this is a public uh, kind of database. And if you search immigration, refugees, citizenship, Canada, IRCC and employers who have been found non-compliant, lo and behold, you will find and keep in mind, this is a list for both the temporary foreign worker programs. So employers who had applied for an LMIA and for employers under the International Mobility Program. So you don't get off the hook just because you did that offer of employment, you paid the $230 and you think, all right, that's it, that was easy, you're still subject to all those same employer compliance requirements. So if you search on there, there's 691 entries right now. So yeah. 691 employers are on that blacklist currently.
0: And it's completely searchable. If someone's going Googling online, I don't know if it would actually take you back there, but um, it it's, it's a huge, huge problem, especially in a very tight market when it's hard to find workers and you need to, to look outside of Canada, you know, you may unwittingly have chosen the wrong representative or the wrong recruiter that pulls you into something you had no idea you're getting into. And so you cannot just turn things over to any representative or lawyer or, or consultant or recruiter to do everything for you. You have to be actively engaged and involved and, you know, just, before we continue down this path, as you brought up the counseling misrep, I think it would be helpful to give people a practical example, a very, very practical example. And it often occurs in the context of global business, international cross-border movement of people, where you have someone, and we've had, you know, we've had consultations and discussions with employers out there where a person needs to come to Canada for a short-term And um, after an assessment, you know, we determine maybe they need a work permit. And uh, there's been situations where we have made those uh, determinations after the fact when someone has been counseled to just go through the border and just tell the officers that they're coming for meetings when, in fact, they're actually working. And so those, uh, the, the HR manager is under, or the global mobility specialist is under a tremendous amount of pressure they need to get this person into Canada. And uh, they they know that it's gonna take a little bit longer to get the proper work authorizations in place and it's gonna cost more money and they're under pressure to keep the cost down and to be able to get the person in. And they know that Canada US has, you know, some pretty um, you know, pretty collegial relations when it comes to cross-border movement of, of workers and business visitors and things like that. And so there's a tendency to have, you know, maybe someone just slightly fudge a little bit the purpose of their entry so that they can come in and, you know, and they feel, Oh, it's worked before, no harm, no foul. But, but the reality is this is exactly what can trigger those criminal provisions within the act. And this is, you know, counseling misrepresentation can be stretched, you know, a long ways out to everybody involved with it. And I remember there was a time, Alicia, where I actually, (laughs) you talk about loss of goodwill and stuff when getting on the blacklist, I, you know, I had to give an opinion uh, to a company and they had kind of operated a little bit footloose and fancy free and, you know, um, and uh, some companies have higher risk tolerances than others. And uh, as an employer, you want to stay away from that as far as you possibly can. And as an immigration lawyer, you do not want to get involved in any way, shape or form with a company who's willing to push the envelope on what is... You know what is simply legal and what isn't. And mm-hmm. uh, it can take it can take a a career to build a reputation. and it can take one bad decision to lose it. And yeah. you definitely want to get down and you don't you don't want to fall into that trap,
2: no. And the other thing that employers should keep in mind is, it's not only them that's gonna get in trouble for employing somebody without authorization, it is their employee as well. And so if you value your employee and you're bringing in you know, a manager or a VP or anybody who's essential to your organization and you're trying to fudge things to have them come in as a business visitor on meetings and they're actually working in Canada and they would need to have that employer compliance offer and or an LMIA, if that person gets caught, then they have engaged in unauthorized work in Canada. And guess what? They're ineligible to be issued a work permit for six months. And that you know, fact that they've worked without authorization might make them inadmissible. They might be subject to misrep if they've been saying that they were just coming in for business visitor meetings. And if they're found to have been inadmissible for misrep, that's a five-year bar where they can't come in as a visitor or apply for PR. So these are long lasting, basically consequences for the employer, but as well for the employee and their family. So this is not something that can be fudged and yes, it takes more time, it takes more money, it takes more effort to do it correctly and you just have to do it correctly.
0: Exactly. Let's take a quick break for our sponsor and we'll be back in just a second. Journey Business Plans is the leading immigration business plan writing service provider in Canada. With more than 10 years of experience, Journey has grown to become a trusted partner for immigration consultants and lawyers. Journey focuses on preparing business plans for a number of immigration applications, including intercompany transfers, startup visas, significant benefits, self-employed, PNPs, and so much more. Their main competitive advantages are reliability, responsiveness, and overall customer service, and I can attest to that. For those of you who don't yet know about Journey, ask your colleagues about them. They're amazing, or even better, try out their work. You can visit their website at www.journey.ca and mention you listened to my podcast with the code Journey 10 That's H-O-L-T-H-E-J-O-O-R-N-E-Y, number 10. And that'll provide you with a 10% discount on your very first business plan for new lawyers. We're so grateful to have Journey Business Plans as the title sponsor of this podcast. So Alicia, how do employers get themselves into these problems? So how does the government find out um, we've talked about the provisions under the Act and uh, the Immigration and Refugee Protection Act and regulations. We've talked about the the blacklist that employers can find themselves in. Um, mm-hmm. We know that there are fines and they can be barred from even accessing the program, cancelling. Like there's a whole bunch of other things that kind of flow through this and we'll talk about each of those in length because the fines are pretty creative. I'll, I'll give them that. They're, they're pretty creative based on you know, a number of factors they take into consideration. Um, but how do employers typically run afoul? Mm-hmm.
2: Well, there's actually a public tip line. Um, so sometimes it's a disgruntled employee or somebody who's looking in from the outside and saying, hey, how are how's that company operating with all these people who don't appear to have proper work authorizations? So maybe there's a tip that goes into CBSA or IRCC maybe it is one of the employees themselves who are not happy about how they're being treated it might also be a random inspection or an audit that the government is doing more of so they are they know that this is happening there have been a few news stories recently and sometimes it gets really bad right sometimes it gets into human trafficking and employers withholding passports and really bad actors who have people in very know dangerous living conditions and are not properly paying them not allowing them freedom of movement things like that and those are are very serious crimes and I mean human trafficking is something that's going to be investigated and um, followed up on so sometimes these things hit, hit the news they hit the media and the government is aware that they are happening and it is important for program integrity that Canada show that it is making sure that it's protecting temporary foreign workers because people want to come somewhere where, where they're going to be able to live and work with dignity and to be able to have the conditions that they were promised they are going to have. So it's through a, a number of different factors. It could be something they have done, but it could just be a random audit as well. And so it, they're, they're saying yeah, that there's I, mm-hmm. more of that
0: Yeah, and I, I wanted to just, really highlight this. So we can give you examples and you can go to the, the naughty list and you can see the employers are on there and there's some fairly hefty fines. You know, I, I don't know what the highest fine is, maybe 60,000, 70,000 or whatever. Oh no. More. Is it, Look is it at page increased? three,
2: Mark. Yeah, I, I see a two two hundred 258,000 in a five-year ban go. on page
0: three. Okay. Yeah. There we go. So we're, we're up there in dollars and and we'll, we'll dive into the fines here in a little bit, kind of how they, they can calculate these fines. But more often than not, you guys that are listening to this, whether you're the global mobility specialist, the HR manager, whatever it might be, understand that more often than not, these problems arise for just simple little oversights, things that you you, you know, you just didn't pay close attention to. Um, small little issues of non-compliance that compound one on top of another that can result in, some pretty hefty fines. So Alicia, can you break down just a little bit, um, just some of the factors that they look at when they are determining how much to find an employer who's non-compliant? Mm-hmm.
2: So fines are determined by severity, but also by incidence. And so if you have a fairly large corporation and you have, let's say, I don't know, maybe 10 foreign workers, and you have been a little bit lax with your payroll or with your record keeping or anything like that, then if you are inspected or audited, or they do an investigation, and you're non-compliant, then you can be fined per occurrence. And then per severity of the occurrence. So this is how these things can start to compound. And if you take a look, if you go to that web page, employers who've been found non-compliant and you actually, so the first part of the top page, top part of the page will show you all the employers and which violations. But if you scroll down to the bottom, it does list the reasons that employers may be found non-compliant. And Some of them are are pretty straightforward, right? Number one, or reason number one, the employer couldn't show the information they listed in the offer of employment was true for a period of six years. Starting on the first day, the temporary worker worked for them. So keeping those records for six years and showing that you actually are complying with them. Number two, didn't keep documents that showed they met the conditions of employing a temporary foreign worker for a period of six years. Number three, didn't have the money to pay the wages agreed to, and this is specifically for live-in caregivers. Number four, couldn't show that the description they gave for the job on the LMIA was true, right? So if you hire somebody under a labor market impact assessment, and there is a risk now because these LMIAs, they're issued, usually they're valid for 18 months, and then people might be coming for up to three years. And sometimes employers forget that whatever they've put on that LMIA for the job title and the job duties and the NOC and the wage all has to be maintained. They can't just promote somebody within the period of employment. And often employers are shocked. They say, well, you know, I thought I could get dinged for being non-compliant if i reduced somebody's wages which is true or reduced their job title which is true but you can also get dinged if you tried to promote that person or increase their wages so that's a that's a very common ground for non-compliance too i mean i've just read a couple of them there are 20 provisions that are summarized here which all correspond to section 209 point whatever of the immigration mm-hmm. refugee protection regulations
0: so we've got fines. Um, some employers, obviously, if they find themselves on the blacklist, they're going to realize that they're barred for participation within the temporary foreign worker program or the IMP. But what about existing LMIAs and work permits that have already been issued?
2: Mm-hmm. So this is something that employers need to realize as well. If they are found non-compliant, depending on depending on the officer's determination, they might still be eligible to continue to participate in the programs, the temporary foreign worker program or the international mobility program. So you'll see on the right hand column, it says eligible or ineligible. If you've been found ineligible to continue to participate in the program, sometimes that ineligibility can last for a few months or a few years. So the the most grievous violations are five-year bans. And that doesn't only prevent you from having new applications submitted, it also cancels your current LMIAs or your current employer portal authorizations under the IMP. And so all your existing workers are no longer authorized to work for you either.
0: All right, let's, let's wrap up with just a couple other examples and situations where employers can unwittingly find themselves offside. And often these result in some of these changes that you've talked about. When it comes to LMIAs being issued, there are specific conditions. And, you know, a year later, two years later, um, employers may unwittingly have amended or changed those terms, resulting in a finding of non-compliance. So what are some examples of, of these types of situations?
2: Mm-hmm. So some of the examples, and we'll talk about this more in the next doc- episode, is not complying with an inspection right if if those inspectors show up at your place of work and they say let us in and give us access to all your computers and phones employers actually have to do that and if they refuse that's a violation under the provisions Um, we talked about making sure that those working conditions were the same so they have to match they can't be better than what was outlined in the lmia or the employer offer. Uh, One of the things is take a look or follow through on your LMIA requirements. So if you're looking at a low wage LMIA, we talked about the cap. You can't have a number of temporary foreign workers that exceed the cap for your business. Same thing on the transition plans for high wage LMIAs. If you've said that you're going to transition away from temporary foreign workers and you had specific activities, three of those plus one of the um, ones that are going to deal with underrepresented groups, then you actually have to be able to back up the fact that you followed through, that you've done what you said you were going to do on your transition plans. Failure to show that, is going to actually result in a potential violation. Um, Sometimes companies will say that they're agreeing to train or hire Canadians or sometimes, and this is a tricky one, sometimes instead of doing four distinct measures on a high wage LMIA, the company will say, okay, the other thing that you could do is support an employee's permanent residence. And it's been interesting, especially when we all of a sudden come into a, a labor market downturn. When an employee decides to leave or gets fired, and on the LMIA, instead of having the transition plan for activities, they said, we're going to support your PR. Well, if that employee is no longer eligible, is not going to follow through, is not going to apply for PR, then you can be non-compliant unless you go back, amend your transition plan, and do four distinct activities. So that's, that's a a sneaky one that employers need to be aware of as well.
0: Yeah. It's no doubt that, you know, that employers, uh, there's a lot to know. There's a lot to understand about this process. And you have to do your due diligence. You have to become educated, especially if you're going to be using these programs. You can't take it lightly. You can't um, you can't outsource it to, to a, a recruiter or a consultant or to a law firm you need to maintain an understanding. Now, absolutely, firms and and consultants and people can help and support you. But at the end of the day, everything, you know, it rests on you. And, uh, you know, one of the things I know that we do with our companies is we do audits for them. So if you're in a situation where you've got some questions or you realize, oh, we could have problems with how we've been doing things in the past, you know, one of the things that we do within our firm and many firms do is we provide assistance in in completing an audit, going through, helping to determine problem areas, making corrections where necessary. And one thing that maybe is also worthwhile talking about, Alicia, as we wrap up, is the ability to proactively uh, disclose problems as quickly as possible. And one of the contexts within the, the, uh, you know, the the audit regime is if you've taken steps to, to try to correct or fix the problem proactively, um, then they're going to, you know, what they've said is that the consequences obviously will not be as severe if you're, you know, if you're, if you're doing that versus having them find it out and you're trying to conceal it or otherwise haven't disclosed it. So any thoughts on that as we wrap up, Alicia?
2: Mm hmm. So you're right, Mark, having an audit procedure, but in the first place, having a business immigration strategy and making sure that your systems and procedures are set up properly and keeping current with changes in the law, because I'm willing to bet a bunch of employers don't realize that the law changed last September in 2022. And there are new provisions that can result in employer compliance violations. And one of the big ones is that it's important that all employers have put enough effort in to make sure that the workplace is free of physical abuse sexual abuse psychological abuse and financial abuse and this is pretty maybe amorphous right like there's there's some latitude in terms of how officers are going to interpret this and so it behooves companies to go out and make sure that they have done their due diligence to make sure that they have not only policies in place, but they're actually putting these things into practice. They're actually walking the talk here and they're showing that they have a workplace that's free of psychological abuse or sexual abuse or financial abuse. And they can demonstrate that from leadership all the way down, there are ways of addressing internal complaints. So making sure that companies stay current with what's going on in changes in the law, um, keeping up to date with audits so that they are doing spot compliance checks on their own. If they do notice a violation, you're absolutely right, Mark. It is better to come clean, to address that violation, to report it, to do a self-report to ESDC to say, oh my goodness, we just realized this happened. Maybe there was a payroll mix up and we have corrected it, right? Especially if it's a payroll mix up, show that the company has actually um, fixed it, paid the wages that they ought to have paid, and they have proof that they did so. So things like that. And we'll talk about that more in the next podcast as well.
0: Indeed. All right. Well, thanks so much, Alicia. Uh, This brings us to the end of this episode. Like we said, in our next business immigration series, we're going to talk about those employer compliance reviews, audits, inspections, and uh, both within the context of the IMP and the Temporary Foreign Worker Program. So look forward to seeing you all then. And thanks for listening.
1: Thank you for listening to the Canadian Immigration Podcast. Your trusted source for information on Canadian immigration law policy and practice. If you would like to book a legal consultation, please visit www.holtylaw.com. You can also find lots more helpful information on our Canadian Immigration Institute YouTube channel, where you can join Mark on one of his many Canadian Immigration Live Q&As. See you soon. And all the best as you navigate this crazy world we call Canadian immigration.